Graves. He's on assignment. But with me, as not always, is Ryan Coleman uh, here for the first time. Hey, Ryan. Hey, man. How you doing? So uh, I'm doing good. Uh, Ryan's coming to us live from Scotland, from Edinburgh, and uh, he is going to help us with today's podcast. We're going to put off what we promised last week, which is um, oppression tokens. We'll put that off until another week when, when Nick is available. Uh, but for this week, we are going to uh, still be doing episode 18 of The Mean, and it will be entitled The Finer Things. Um, so the reason that we brought Ryan on is because Ryan is a connoisseur of a few different things, and we'll get to that in just a bit. But I think an idea that's connected to The Finer Things is this idea of trying things you've never tried before, exploring new things, uh, variations on a theme. And Ryan, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what your experience has been like over the past year or so relocating your life to the United Kingdom. What has that been like for you, and and what how how has that either changed your perspective or confirmed it, vis a vis um, the finer things? Oh man, um, well it's interesting because uh, I've never lived outside of Florida, and now I live on another continent. Um, so it's definitely been a bit weird, especially going from sun to darkness um, all the time yeah. in rain. Um, but it's different. It's like a little bit of a, a bizarre world, but it's also the same. I mean, coming from uh, Orlando, there's such a big international mm-hmm. um, presence that being in a, a relatively large European city, it just feels very similar, especially, I mean, there is no language barrier yeah, most of the time. Um, so it feels, uh, very similar to home. Um, what is Edinburgh like in general? I think most of our listeners probably have never been there and probably don't know a lot about it. Like, what would you compare it to, if anything, in other cities? Uh, I mean, I think comparable, it'd be similar to a Boston in some regards, okay. as far as, uh, I mean, it's smaller, um, uh, square mileage wise. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an old historic city. I mean, the building I'm in right now was built in mid 1800s. Um, but I go to school in a building that was built in 1843. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm always in buildings that are older than America. Uh, so it's definitely a very historic city. I walk up a hill every day and look at a castle that's been around for parts of it have been around for a thousand years. Wow. So um, that, that's kind of surreal Mm -hmm. and uh, and culturally is it pretty comparable to an american city like there's maybe some art music stuff happening some theaters movie stuff going on oh yeah yeah definitely um edinburgh has a a, the world's largest culture festival uh every august called fringe um yep and so uh i was kind of pissed because last year sufian came to Mm -hmm. town uh, and he was here for two days. He was here, I think, the 28th and 29th of August. And we got here on September 1st. So, so you missed it. That was exciting. Yeah, and then he was in Orlando in the middle of September. So just full circle slap in the face right there. You just really missed out. Like mm-hmm. a whole lot. Now, you're drinking a beer. Yeah, as a we lot do of this podcast. What kind of beer are you drinking? Oh, it's exciting times. This is from uh, a brewery called Taul. Uh, they are Scandinavian, uh, and this is called, it's a fun name, Black Malts and Body Salts. Nice. Um, and it is a uh, black IPA made with French press coffee. Wow. So combines a couple of the finer things into one glass. Very nice. So uh, you found the, the beer scene to be uh, pretty robust over there? Uh, yeah, the beer scene here is pretty interesting because um, when you think of British beer, or at least when I did before moving over here, you think of like a 4% bass, Newcastle, amber. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I've never seen either of those things yeah. here, um, but I know they exist. Um, 
but just like a four percent kind of flat room temperature mm-hmm. beer. Um, and while it does exist, and there are good versions of that, um, the the craft beer scene is blowing up in Europe mm-hmm. and specifically in the UK, and then in Scotland it's exploding. There's some uh, brewery called Brewdog, who are kind of like the um, like the Stone or the New Belgium. Mm-hmm. Or the Sierra Nevada over here. So they kind of somewhat ubiquitous, um, but still staying true uh, to their roots. And they're kind of changing the game. They're one of the big importers of American and European craft beer into the UK. Hmm. Um, so what do you get over there from America? So, um, well, we did get Ballast Point until, until they sold out. Mm. Um, so we don't get Ballast Point anymore. But we get Sierra Nevada, um, Founders... Uh, Oscar Blues, um, a handful. We get actually we get uh, Pete Support, which is a, a California brewery. Um, we get Stone. We get a lot of the the big players um, and a couple of smaller. Does ones anyone drink the big American beers over there? Like, does anyone drink Bud Light? Um, you can find it at at some places. It's not everywhere. You'd have to search it out. There's a handful of bars in Edinburgh I know that have it. But you'd be surprised at how often I see Blue Moon mm. and Sam Adams over here, which is interesting. I mean, I've always um, been, because I'm from Boston, I've always been partial to Sam Adams. But Sam Adams has done pretty well in international competitions, like um, their Sam Adams Boston Lager. Um, so I'm not surprised. Yeah, by no. Yeah, Boston Lager is a great beer, and Sam Adams is still a good independent brewery. I was just surprised to, that they wanted to see it over here. Cause, yeah, because I mean, you'll, the places you'll find Sam Adams are usually places that'll have Bud Light, Blue Moon, and then your typical British or Scottish beer as well. Hmm. Well, any other things that that we should know about moving to Scotland? Uh, if anyone listening has any plans on visiting or going there or living there or visiting, or I already said visiting or traveling around. Yeah, um, Scotland is a beautiful country, probably some of the nicest people in the world. Um, Edinburgh is a phenomenal city. Um, If you compare Edinburgh and Glasgow, the two biggest cities in Scotland, um, Glasgow is definitely like a New York, and Edinburgh is definitely a Boston. Um, Glasgow is kind of industrial and gross, Mm -hmm. but it still has big city feel. Then Edinburgh is more quaint. You can walk from one side of the city to the other side and under 45 minutes. Mm. Um, uh, other Scottish things, haggis is freaking awesome. Um, so you should definitely eat haggis. That's a, that's a blood Scotland. pudding, right? Uh, no, blood pudding is a whole nother deal. Oh, oh I'm sorry. I'm blood sorry. I misspoke. Awesome. Haggis has blood in it though, right? Um, not to my knowledge. Um, it's usually just all the, the awful, mm-hmm. uh, from a sheep. Yes, O-F-F-A-L. Um, so you have like lung and kidneys and liver and brain. And then you mix it up with seasoning and oats. And then you either stuff it into a stomach or an artificial casing. And then you boil it. And then you serve it with neeps and tatties, uh, which is short for turnips and potatoes. All right. So if you're ever in Scotland, eat haggis, eat neeps and tatties, drink whiskey, and get out of your comfort zone and try a warm cask ale. They're not all that bad. There are some really good craft breweries doing uh, cask ale over here. Good to know. All right. So since you've been sampling whiskeys over there and beers and, and coffee and barbecue and other things that you're into, um, <laughs> why don't you give us a quick rundown of how you entered the world of what we call the finer things and maybe just give us like a quick working definition of, of, when you say the finer things, what you mean by that? So when I say the finer things, specifically for me, I think everyone kind of has their own definition, but for me, um, that includes uh, basically, I mean, the two categories or or three categories would be like drink, food, and tobacco. Mm -hmm. Um, Breaking those down would be coffee, whiskey, beer, um, cigars, pipe tobacco, uh, and then, you know. So like a working definition would be something that you consume, that you enjoy. 
Yeah, something something that you consume, something that you enjoy, something that ideally would be made by a human and not a machine. Okay. Um, so something that has, uh, the, you know, the buzzword be craft or artisan, mm-hmm. um, that would come under the heading of finer things. Something that's made by a human with a passion for that product. Yeah, so humanly crafted consumables for one's enjoyment. Precisely. And so how did you, you know, how did you go from, I assume you grew up a pretty, uh, pretty normal American kid, probably ate fast food from time to time, enjoyed soda and things of that nature. How did you kind of shift to maybe being a bit more intentional or discerning in your, in your choice of consumables? So I guess, I don't know if there was ever a definitive shift, uh, in my desire for, for having the quote unquote finer things. But I think what it comes down to is for me, it's all derived out of a past passion for knowledge and I'm a big researcher. Um, so I mean, that's why you moved to Scotland to research things, right? Precisely. Um, so I think once you find something that you enjoy specifically for me, so let's say it's uh, beer, you know, uh, you want to find out about the, the different types of beer, the different uh, people making beer, the different ideologies behind uh, brewing. Um, you want to try everything. You want to uh, force your palate to, to go to different extremes to enjoy um, things that are funky and sour and things that are bitter and malty. You know, you want to, you want to see what's out there, find out what you like and then go as hardcore and as deep into that. So I think one conversation that you and I have always have is when I say that I like coffee, I'm not saying I like coffee. I'm saying I like coffee that tastes like tea Mm -hmm. and raspberries. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when I say I like beer, I mean I like beer, but I also like beer that tastes like pine trees and grapefruit. Mm -hmm. Sour Patch Kids. And Sour Patch Kids and old socks. Mm -hmm. And vinegar. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you seem so to enjoy things as sort of worlds or universes that you get to explore the nooks and, and crannies of, and in such a way that you consume, you consume versions of things like you know sour beers and things of that nature, which I've had to and I enjoy. But you, you get into these sort of um, worlds within worlds where the thing that you're consuming is so different from what most people think when you say the word, uh, when, what most people would say, Oh yeah, that is what he like, like this is what a cigar tastes like, or this is what a beer tastes like, or this is what coffee tastes like that you've used that as an entree into like a completely different set of experiences rather than what people would normally expect them to be. Oh yeah, completely. And that's why, like I think the biggest nightmare for anybody who's like into coffee is for people you know to know that you're into coffee because what that means is that you get a crap ton of Starbucks gift cards for presents, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's exactly what you don't want. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's to a level where the thing that you like isn't that thing mm-hmm. anymore. It's on. It's, it's yeah. It's, it's unlike yeah. it's unlike the thing that originally attracted you to the category of thing. Precisely. So I guess philosophically, it's the willingness to kind of follow the, 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 you know, the rabbit hole to kind of like, like follow the thread, no matter where it goes in terms of kind of being exploring something to the point where it, it, it changes radically, but you still go, well, you know, I'm, I'll, I'm still on board this ride, even though this isn't what I signed up for necessarily. Yeah, definitely. I think it's, um, in some level, it is about pushing the limits of what that thing is and what it can be. Um, and once again, that comes back to the people that are making it and the people that are putting their passion and life into it and them pushing themselves to achieve uh, new flavors, uh, new techniques, new ideas. Yeah, I wanted to talk about maybe a few facets of this. One of them is, um, I guess we'll just call it ceilings and floors. So ceilings and floors for me is something like um, some people enjoy finer things, but they have very high floors, um, meaning they're not going to enjoy, quote unquote, lower things. 
Um, you and I don't subscribe to this because we enjoy Chick Fil A and Chipotle. Um, that's not those. Yeah, those things aren't rare. Those things aren't highbrow. Those things aren't. You know, they're slightly crafted, depending on how you look at it. You know, like someone puts together yeah, the burrito but, or I the, mean, the chicken sandwich, but it's not. You know, it's not a chef yeah. kind of artisanally made uh, meal. So, so there's there's this floor ceiling thing, and then some people have really low ceilings where they just kind of like consume things that most people can get their hands on, like in the context of the United States or the Western world. So, for me, I'm a guy that I think when I think about the finer things, I have a really, I have a pretty low floor. Like, I had beef jerky not too long ago, and I have a pretty high ceiling as well in terms yeah. of getting really highbrow, really esoteric, even really weird. Um, but my ceiling's probably not as high as yours in terms of just really pushing the limit. Uh, I enjoy a really nice glass of whiskey, of scotch. I enjoy a cigar um, or coffee. But you've really kind of made like a you like made it into like a like a chase or a task or like a like a thi- like a like a hmm. like an adventure. Like I'm gonna this is gonna be a thing that like I want to see where this takes me. And that's it's really interesting to me. I I'm not critical of it all. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not critical of it at all. The thing that sometimes I, I would probably be more critical of is when people can't enjoy the lower things. So like when someone has like a really high yeah. floor, like they're like, oh, I can only have a $50 bottle of wine. Yeah, I think the for me, my ceiling and my floor are somewhat compartmentalized. Um, mm-hmm. So... I would say um, as far as my tears are concerned, um, things like wine aren't really on my radar. Um, I'm not a big wine fan. I've had wines that I completely appreciate and enjoy and can pick out the notes and really dig into. Um, but that's probably happens once a year, maybe. Um, and things like food, like anytime when you have meat and fire, I'll probably be interested. Um, and I, I don't care if it was, uh, you know, I mean, maybe I should be more ethical in how I source my meat. Um, <laughs> thankfully, it's not a, a huge problem over here since everything's made here uh, in the UK, that is. Um, but, like, yeah, I mean, if you have meat and fire, I'm pretty much down. Um, but once you start getting into things like coffee, whiskey, beer, Cigars, all so there's stuff. only certain categories um, where you're really pushing the ceiling, and maybe you have a little bit of a higher yeah. floor. And I guess that's part of the mental dissonance for me is like, where do you draw that line? Where do you say, okay, I'm I'm going to eat or, uh, all organic, and I'm only going to, you know, eat quinoa or whatever bullcrap? You know, like where do you where do you draw the line between your floor and the ceiling? Do you have a completely broad thing? Where do you invest your time? Where do you invest your effort? Um, where do you really choose to focus mm-hmm. on? Uh, do you keep that really just broad in general? Or do you say, hey, I'm going to pick these two or three categories and then narrow that down to my personal perfection and then be how, a little bit how do you, broader How do else? you view the economic side of this? Because, I mean, oftentimes with things like whiskey, beer, wine, tobacco, you're going to pay a little bit more or a lot more for something that's of a higher quality or is more crafted or comes in smaller batches or has more humans involved in the production since labor tends to be yeah. a huge component of cost. Um, I think there's a couple of facets uh, to that. I think uh, when you have things that are completely commodified, um, those prices drop. So we have uh, things like coffee. Folgers, mm-hmm. um, right? Where you can get, you can get folders. I mean, even I'm talking Starbucks. You go to Starbucks, and their coffee is uh, generally not sourced very well, not roasted very well. Um, so you go in, you get a, a pound of coffee for maybe what ten, twelve bucks. I don't, I don't even know anymore. Um, that's that's cheap by coffee standards mm-hmm. for the most part. Um, then you go to uh, you know whatever your favorite micro roaster is, and you you pay. You know, anywhere from eighteen to twenty-five dollars for a pound, which isn't—I mean—a ton of money in the grand scheme of things. But when you're talking seventy-five percent, hundred percent markup, yeah. that's considerable for a lot of people. Um, I think it comes down to 
maybe in the balance between uh, enjoyment and consumption. Um, so when you have something that's super cheap, when you cheap, when you can go get a uh, thirty pack of Keystone Light mm-hmm. for fifteen dollars, the goal of that is not to enjoy the the, the craft of the, the product. The the point of that is probably because you're an alcoholic in West Virginia or you're a college student. You know, <laughs> it's not there. There are different the different aims in mind. Okay, so that's um, an interesting so that's that, an interesting point. So. I think the, the the finer things approach to certain of these categories, especially anything carrying caffeine, alcohol, or nicotine, which are drugs, um, mm-hmm. the finer things approach kind of starts to move away from a utilitarian uh, use of these things. Precisely, I think I think that's huge. Um, I, I think those those are still elements of it. Um, you still drink a beer. A couple, you still have a couple beers. You're still going to feel the effects mm-hmm. of it, but that's not the mm-hmm. that's not the purpose in your pursuit of, of trying mm-hmm. a couple new beers. It's not your pursuit in having a cigar. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a nicotine delivery system. Mm-hmm. You're not having three a day mm-hmm. to get. Yeah, it's not vaping. Oh my gosh, we don't even need <laughs> we to don't, talk we about don't. vaping. That should be episode. Yeah, 19. we should talk about vaping. Talk about this vape does. Cards and all that stuff. <laughs> This does bring to mind the, the discussion we had about theater a few weeks ago with Tim when he came on um, to talk about just how art can sometimes be kind of utilitarianized, utilitized, so that art is like basically just for politics or art is just for religion mm-hmm. or art is for. And so basically what happens is the art, the artifice itself, the art itself becomes diminished uh, by a utilitarian use of it. And I think that is probably what has happened to a lot of these things we're talking about because a lot of these things we're talking about alcohol, um, coffee and, uh, and tobacco among many other things started off more of an artisan human discovery exploration thing. They, they didn't start off as, as, you know, Bud Light. Yeah. It it didn't start off as buying a carton of marble lights, you know? Yeah. It started out as, whatever Native Americans and their peace pipes or whatever you want to call it. Um, but I think that's huge. And I think that even ties into the, the Oscar discussion that you guys have is, um, you know, what is the motivation or the goal in doing these yeah. things? And I think that's probably the, the biggest aspect of it is for me is why am I pursuing these things? Why am I putting these things into my body? And it's purely out of one enjoyment, but two, like appreciating the craft, appreciating the fact that somebody has literally spent their life creating this product. They've put their time, their money, their energy into creating something. And I get to take part in that. Yeah, and, I, and I think and you I can flip around the whole, what is the goal of this thing? And you can flip it from the consumer side to the producer side, because I think that also gives you an indication of what's going on. What is the goal of the producer? The goal of the producer is just to make as much money as possible. Well, we've seen what happens. Like you, you get into the the macro breweries and the, the gigantic beverage corporations and the, you know, mm-hmm. and the the pack of marble uh, reds. And so I think there's this almost like this covenantal kind of an agreement between producers and consumers of these finer things that. Um, that money is not the, the only goal, that money is not the entirety of the mission here. Yeah, no, I think there is that kind of unspoken thing. And that's why, it, especially recently, it's bigger in the beer community than anything else, um, is when you have people like Ballast Point, um, I think Terrapin uh, was bought up by Miller Coors or has a big share in Miller Coors now, um, Goose Island, uh, all these breweries are selling out to these giant beverage conglomerations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people, you know, they feel, they feel almost hurt by it. But then on the other hand, you say, okay, balance point, you got bought out for a billion dollars. Um, I mean, it's kind of hard to turn that down if you're looking at it from a business standpoint. Mm-hmm. And if they want also, to, they can start another brewery or something. Exactly. It's like, surprise, <laughs> I just started a brewery up the street. It's San Diego. We do what we want. Um, but, yeah, so you have a huge pushback against that because it almost feels like they're breaking that covenant with the consumer. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
where, and then because now my money spent on buying a six pack of grapefruit sculpin uh, goes to the people that own Corona. And so what it does is it ultimately hurts the other craft brewers out mm-hmm. there because if the average consumer says, Oh, I really like that one IPA and they go and buy it, they're not, they're supporting big beer, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Um, and then ultimately that hurts the other craft brewers in the end. For, for me, I um, think it comes down to balance and it, uh, the same, in the same way that it comes down to balance in terms of the effect of a product. Like you get a little up mm-hmm. from tobacco or caffeine, you, you get a little relaxation from alcohol, uh, and you balance that out with the other, the craft and the flavors and the experience and the textures and the, honestly, the social environments in which you partake of these things, the subjective experience of consuming these with people that you yeah. enjoy uh, being around. I think there's also a balance between craft for the sake of craft, artistry for the sake of artistry on the one hand, and then having something that supports you, something that that um, financially has a, a financial incentive that drives you to compete and be better and hopefully to innovate. That's my dog making weird noises in the background, by the way. Um, but and I, and so I think one one thing this ties into is I think about um, I don't know if you've been paying any attention to the uh, Twitter feed of Kanye West for the last uh, just a just a, a little. Bit. I mean, a few people have been paying attention, but he you know he came out recently. He he kind of dropped his album, kind of. It's only on title, and he revealed it in Madison Square Garden. It's called The Life of Pablo. It's actually based on the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, is the whole the whole thing he's talking about? He's talking about spreading a message, and he's talking. You know, Kirk Franklin is on this record, and um, I think he quoted is quoted as saying, "It's a gospel." Yeah, album. I mean, we're we're a, we're a God dream is is one of the the main ideas in the album. But he he also came out recently and he just said, "Hey, look, I'm 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 fifty three million dollars in personal debt." And um, and he reached out to Mark Zuckerberg. Whether he's trolling or not, he said, "You know, Mark Zuckerberg, like." <laughs> give me give me a billion dollars like help me out and i can make all these beautiful things i can make all these meaningful things i can make all this art i have so many ideas i want to help society so much by creating all this beauty and so you see the tension for him he could have done a whole bunch more commercial things in the last 10 years like he could have done guest spots and things and licensed more things and toured more and done a lot more economically motivated things which he hasn't um according to him and so because he hasn't, even though he makes a ton of money, he doesn't make enough money for all of the sort of um, weird out there things that he does. He hires, you know, people that no one's ever heard of and he backs other ventures and stuff. And so he spent a lot of money. He's borrowed a lot of money. And I think Kanye shows us what happens when a brilliant artist, uh, even a brilliant uh, commercially successful artist, focuses so much on what they want to do, what they want to create to the detriment of figuring out like how to actually support it financially. Yeah. And I mean, I take his claims of debt with a grain of salt. Grain of yeah. salt. Yeah. Um, but I'm just taking him at face think, value, you know? Yeah. Taking him at face value. Um, even then. So what, what I draw from that is that if you are a creator, if you're an artisan, you, you can't do 30 things really mm-hmm. well. You can't be a rapper. You can't be a producer. Fashion mogul. You can't be a fashion icon. Yeah, you can't um, do thirty different things to the utmost level and be top tier and everything. That's not possible. So when I hear something like that, someone who claims they are Steve Jobs and Walt mm-hmm. Disney, um, it's hard for me to it's hard for me to get on board with that because you can't have your hands on that many things and have them all be as good as they could be. If, if Kanye says, hey, I'm, I'm going to stay as a producer and be the best producer possible, he you know, would go down to history as the best. You, you know? mean I you mean, can't focus on creating that, a video game, uh, the theme of which is your mother getting her angel's wings and going to heaven? <laughs> is she riding like a Pegasus? Uh, I'm not as well, sure. I, I have to go check it out again. <laughs> no, but I mean, I took away something slightly different. Which, I mean, I agree with what you're saying, but I took away something slightly different, which is you still got to hustle like to survive in the marketplace. And it's like, he works really, really hard, but he works really, really hard on what he wants to do. He doesn't want to tour the same way Beyonce tours. He doesn't want to do guests. 
guest hooks, you know, and produce other people's albums and make a hundred thousand dollars for walking in the studio for an hour. He doesn't want to do that. He wants to yeah. do his own stuff. He wants to have a fashion line. He wants to do, he wants to, you know, do, do whatever he wants to do. And so because, and I think there's something deeper here that I'm trying to get at because he's making this stuff for him. He knows people will love it. He knows he wants to be the greatest. He wants yeah. people to consume it, but it's all on his terms. And one of the things I, I appreciate about small businesses that have been founded by people making finer things is that oftentimes they're both doing something they want to do and innovating and making stuff for them and their friends. And they're responding to the marketplace. They're responding to what they're, they're waking people up to a certain thing, but they're also responding to what yeah. people have said they want. And I think you can see that in sort of like the IPA boom, right? Like some people oh, figured totally, out, yeah. Oh, people really like this kind of a hoppy beer, this kind of a high alcohol content beer that's doing these different things. And a lot of people have made a lot of money, including Balance Point, which specializes in, you know, hoppy beers like that. So yeah. I think for me, I'm always happy to see someone who's kind of balancing out that kind of starving artist. I need to do this for myself. The meaning of life is in my work with a kind of like, no, but I'm also here to like meet people where they are and, and bring them on a journey with me. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally agree with that. And I think there is that there's that balance needs to exist or else you won't be successful. Uh, I, I mean, and not just successful in a monetary form, but you won't be successful in bringing people to the finer thing that you're producing. Mm -hmm. And that, that brings to me, uh, uh, brings up to my mind, something I wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, in a lot of these discussions about art or about craft or art artisanship, which is not really a word, but in, in a lot of these, these areas, there seems to be this kind of like, if you get too big, you are necessarily a sellout. Like to be small is to be authentic, to be small is to be mm -hmm. real. And once you get big, like you can't possibly be keeping it real. So what is, what is your kind of reaction to that? Do you agree with that? Disagree? How do you evaluate, you know, bigness, smallness and the concept of like big equals sellout? Um, so I think there's definitely um, a spectrum um, I think, and not everything is going to be transparent to the consumer, uh, whether it's motivation or how they're sourcing things or how they're, they're doing things. Um, I think what tends to be the trend right now is the bigger you get, the more likely you are to be bought out by a larger corporation. Um, so you have what in intelligentsia, blue um, bottle, blue bottle, I think even Stumptown has now has been bought out a majority of them. You have people like that. You uh, once again the litany of craft brewers that have been that have been purchased um, doesn't really happen in the cigar world. Too yeah, much. I was going to ask about that. Like we're um, talking about beer and we're talking about coffee, but like it seems like cigar cigar manufacturers. I, I don't know as much about this, but it doesn't seem like there's like this McDonald's kind of you know taking over and cat or Anheuser Busch InBev kind of taking over smaller brands or is there? Uh, and definitely not as much. There are two, and I guess three corporations that do uh, control probably a majority of the cigars you see, um, which are mainly geared towards the average consumer. The guy who goes out on the golf course on a Saturday and wants a cigar. Black um, and mild. But, you know. Yeah. And, well, it's interesting. I'm, uh, and I could be completely wrong. I'm pretty sure the same people that own Black and Mild, I think it's Scandinavian Tobacco Group. Um, I think maybe it was a year and a half or two years ago, they purchased um, Drew Estate Tobacco. Really? Which is one of the biggest. I yeah, enjoyed I'm Drew pretty Estate. confident. I know they've definitely been purchased by Scandinavian Tobacco. I'm not sure it's the same as Black and Mild. I'm pretty confident. Maybe they do Swisher Sweets. It might not be the same. Uh, but that was a big shake in the cigar world. Um, but Drew has claimed that they've remained autonomous. I, I like just, their stuff. They did it for distribution and all that jazz. Um, so yeah, it's not as big there, uh, but it does exist where you have these um, kind of big companies that own a bunch of brands that consumers recognize um, that the enthusiasts generally look down upon uh, because they don't see it as being as, as craft or as, as cared for. I guess that's the thing is that you want some, a product that has passion put into it. Um, and so the bigger you get, the less passion that the enthusiast will see in that product. Um, so uh, 
trying to think of how, what was the, the, the specific question again? I guess the, the continuum of being small and being, yeah, big, like, being like, for the people. Do you, do you buy into bigness as watered downness or bigness as uh, losing your artistic credibility ness? I think at some level, you have the bigger you get, you you do lose something, especially with a product that is based on resources. Well, I'll give you I'll give you an example. Uh, right before Ballast Point got bought out, let's let's back up three months or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Was there mm-hmm. anything worse about them than when they started? No, I think that, I think that's actually a good. A, a good example or a good exception to the rule um, is that when you have a craft brewer like Dallas Point, the the big beers that they distribute, um, your Sculpin, your Grenion, Eldorado, whatever beers they're making and distributing nationwide for the most part, those aren't, I mean, those are the, their flagship beers. They've brewed them down to a science. It's, um, it's not a problem. Uh, so I think, and they still have that, that local craft feel. So I guess ultimately in the ballast point case, it would be a matter of principle, not necessarily a matter that that they've gotten bigger and thus they are inherently. Yeah. That's what I'm asking about because for for me, I know that's a good, I, you know, Sam, Sam Adams, Boston lager is pretty consistent and it's been consistent over the years and people who've been drinking it since, you know, it's first got, you know, started up again. Um, when craft breweries started to make their comeback in like the eighties and, in nineties, um, it's still the same beer. It's still, you know, just as high quality and, and they're still technically a, 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 you know, a craft brewer, but they've, they've done that on purpose. They, they could have grown a lot. They could have grown a lot bigger, but they would still want to have the, the micro, um, legally speaking, there's some advantage to it or some, or, or some, yeah. How many, yeah, they just want to stay under, they want to stay under yeah. a certain, a certain amount, but you know, they're making a ton more than they were 25 years ago. Right. And so, mm-hmm. but it doesn't seem like the quality of their, of their core offerings has, has diminished. No, I totally agree there. And, and, um, is it Jim Coke or Jim Cox, however you pronounce his last name, Cook. owner of, um, Tim Cook or Jim Cook, whatever. Um, I mean, he is a huge craft beer fanatic and he loves beer. And I guess it was, there was a big hop shortage. Could be uh, Coke. Three or four could years be back. I forget. Yeah. Whatever. Um, and he he sold a bunch of his hops to craft brewers that weren't able to buy hops so they could stay in business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is that that community and that camaraderie feel. Um, but on the other end of the spectrum, a couple of examples that happened in the UK recently is um, there are two um, breweries, a Meantime and Camden. I think they're both outside of London. I'm not sure if they were both bought by uh, AB InBev or SAB Miller Coors or whoever. But the way that it works over here is that um, when when you're part – basically the way that taxation works is the more beer you produce, the higher your tax bracket mm-hmm. is, blah, blah, blah. So the second that um, Camden got bought out, their beer that, say, cost – you know five pence to produce a can of now costs 20 pence to produce a can of because of taxation. Because instead of brewing a million liters a year, their company now brews 500 million Mm -hmm. liters a year, whatever number. So their tax bracket goes to the roof. So instantly to be profitable again, you have to cut costs. Um, Now I'm sure some costs are cut because they're buying their conglomerates, buying hops by the boatload Mm -hmm. and grain by the boatload. Um, but at some level, you have to start cutting corners. You have to start uh, buying a cheaper, mm-hmm. cheaper product to make a product that can sell for the same price or even lower price. So of this profitable. is one concrete example of big business and big government colluding to make people's lives actively worse. <laughs> yes, it is a conspiracy theory, if you will. It's just like you know the government being like, well, if you're big, we're going to tax you more. All right, well, either yeah, never yeah, get yeah. big, just stay small. Unless people will try your beer, right? Or yeah. if you get you know bought out or you even grow big naturally, you're going to pay more taxes, and therefore people are going to have to pay a lot more for it. Or uh, you're going to have to cut corners, and then it's not a quality product anymore. 
is kind of interesting. Yeah. Another idea that I had related to this was the idea, you know, the bigger is badder kind of idea that a lot of people seem to have about craft products is that uh, if you can maintain quality uh, as you grow, as you get bigger, um, and if you if you can um, stay true to your vision, then it would seem philosophically to be um, a good, like if, for example, if you think that having your beer in the world or your cigars in the world or your coffee in the world adds something to the world, then mm-hmm. at least until some point at which it saturates the world and then the world is no longer a better place because other things are being crowded out, you would think that each additional, each marginal unit that you add to the world actually makes the world a better place because more and more people are yeah. trying it, more and more people are getting to experience it, and it's maybe upping the quality of their experience as a beer drinker or a cigar smoker or a coffee drinker or whatever. So it would seem to me that up until some point, which I don't know, you'd have to really think a lot about when the kind of utility goes away, but up until some point, yeah. all small businesses, if they think they're adding good to the world, probably should try to be as big as possible if they can maintain their standards. Yeah. And I think that's why um, breweries like Stone and Sierra Nevada are killing it. I mean, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is as perfect as a pale ale can get for what it yep. is and it's cheap it's widely distributed i can get it in the uk for a pound 90 a bottle which mm-hmm. is cheap by uk standards and that makes beer. your life better i'm sure you can get it. yeah and, and it's a good standard beer there's nothing wrong with it it's made um, by people that care about beer and care mm-hmm. about uh the beer community so i think um with the idea of growth um and things like that a lot of it comes down to competition within the community mm-hmm. and the um, and the motivation behind it. So when you have a, an AB InBev whose goal is pretty much just to make profits for their Belgian and Brazilian overlords. Yeah, if you're a corporation um, then in your charter, it will say what your goals are usually includes maximizing yeah. shareholder uh, wealth. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then you have, uh, breweries like, um, New Belgium, uh, and Stone who are, I I know New Belgium is employee owned. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Um, but you have these, but you have this, this community of people that are working together. Um, yeah, they're inherently competitive, but that doesn't mean that they are, um, shooting each other down at any, any chance. They're not fighting for a shelf space at the supermarket. Um, they want to be next to their their fellow brewer because they care about delivering a quality product to the people, regardless if it's their product, or if it's their friend's product, or if it's their competitor's product. They just want to make sure that the people uh, that are enjoying beer are enjoying. Beer. By the way, when, uh, one of the things I like about drinking beer is that most of the time I, I I like it to be a cold, refreshing beverage in addition to all the other things that that beer can be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really like um, New Belgium's shift. Um, That's just their um, standard lager, yeah, right? Yeah, and it's just like a really, like I'm not even a big lager person at all, but shift is just really enjoyable, really drinkable. It's refreshing, but there's some, there's a little, a little bit more going on than the, than the, uh, the average bear. It's just something that I enjoy. Yeah. I mean, I think that's actually an interesting point um, because lagers generally get dumped on, in the craft beer community. And so you have people um, like Sam Adams, BrewDog, um, uh, uh, who else? I mean, almost every brewery as of late, uh, whether it's mass distribution distribution or local, has made an Indian pale lager. Mm -hmm. So basically just a hoppy Mm -hmm. lager, kind of to to make uh, lagers more palatable. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of these breweries are making just generic lagers. Like Cigar City has a lager. It's a generic lager, but it's made by a craft brewery, so it gives the consumer an alternative to buying a a big name. Let's lager. just take a minute and just um, for anybody who hasn't enjoyed Cigar City. Cigar City is a, a brewery out of Florida. Uh, it's located near near mm-hmm. Tampa, correct? They're in Tampa. Uh, yeah, right on the border of Ebor City, which is the historic mm-hmm. 
Cigar City area. And for me, they're just an example of just people that are doing it right. Like, I've never had a Cigar City beer and been like, oh, no, this is disappointing. Like, uh, High Lie is just such a win. Every time I visit Florida from California, I have to get High Lie now. It's just part of the... Uh, part of the the journey for me and um i just uh you know i know only a couple hundred people listen to this podcast but uh if you like beer you should definitely get uh into cigar city um are they only distri- distributed on the east coast uh yeah their their distribution actually isn't that wide it should be expanding cuz they are still um building more buildings and occupying the ones in their area um to make more beer um, but uh, Florida, I believe Alabama, Virginia Beach, New York, parts of Georgia, and then um, a handful of other. They're places. just killing it with the tasty um, beverages they're creating. Oh no, they're they're really dominating. Highlight is my favorite IPA. Um, in fact, uh, I mean, every trip we go from America to the UK, a majority of my luggage weight is Highlight. So, and it just for me, I'm not like, even like a huge IPA person. I mean, I I have um, I have uh, Sculpin in my fridge right now, um, which I enjoy. But uh, Highlight's just for me. There's a lot going on there. It's not just hops. It's it's balanced. There's and I know nobody yeah, listens to this podcast. It's not crushingly bitter. About how I like to drink beer, but um, yeah, I just think there's a balance to it, and I really appreciate when someone can make something that's not just a one a one trick pony like oh look how hoppy this is it's like a, oh impressive yeah and i think that actually brings up another good point is the the question of balance and one trick ponies because generally i don't like balance too much in the things that i mm-hmm. enjoy uh, i do prefer it to be um extreme now um obviously there are exceptions because highlight is perfect um, but when we talk about coffee and, and things like that, like I want something, and this is different strokes for different folks, obviously, but I want something really fruity, really acidic, um, doesn't have to be balanced in any stretch of imagination. Um, beers, I could have a beer that's crushingly bitter that ruins my taste buds, and that could be perfect, you know? Yeah, that's um, the side of so you that really likes sh- to push the limits on things. Yeah, but I think it's an interesting question because it's definitely off-putting to the average consumer. Um, so those are products that are specifically created um, for the the extreme lover of that product. They're not created uh, for the general public in, in most cases, um, which I think is it's interesting because it's kind of the guild making something for the guild. Mm. Yeah, I, I think balance is probably a um, matter of perspective Um, because one, you know, balance, there's absolute balance, but then there would be like um, relative balance because you you can make a beer so hoppy that it's undrinkable. You can make, you know, tobacco, you can make a cigar in such a way that it's not even recognizably a cigar anymore. And so I think, yeah, I, I think, um, I think even extremes are still balanced in certain ways. It's just that they're really highlighting one particular, like the one trick pony thing. And I think it, it brings uh, an interesting question about in, in having an experience, are you trying to have just such a specific experience or do you want it to be a very complex experience? Um, and I think sometimes it's both and sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other. I'll give you an example. Like people in, in the United States of America uh, because of the success of California wines, a lot of us think about really great wine in terms of varietals. Like I want a Chardonnay that is just an amazing yeah. Chardonnay. I want a Pinot Noir that is a that is just an incredible Pinot Noir, and it has all these things going on. But actually, we've we've seen um, Jessica Jessica and I as we've gotten more into wine and have some friends who are really really into wine. That probably some of the best wine in the world. This isn't really. Um, controversial uh you know comes from bordeaux france and in france you'd be like oh what varietals are they doing france doesn't really do varietals they do blends um and so instead of doing a chardonnay they're doing a a red blend that has this and that and they they you know the the names um 
the names of the wines are the wineries they come from. And they make very specific blends that they've really calibrated with two, three, four grapes over a long period mm-hmm. of time. And so they have this these layers of complexity and interaction and there's so much going on. And so arguably for, for people with, with more sort of developed palates, there's a lot more in the blend world uh, than there is in the single origin or single varietal world. Now, have you seen any of that happen in the coffee, whiskey, uh, tobacco worlds? Like, like rather than going like this comes from one mountain in Ethiopia and it tastes like blueberries. Have you, have you seen any of this kind of like, yeah, but when you blend things, sometimes really interesting things happen too. So that's a really good question because blends in, uh, specifically the coffee world and whiskey world are frowned upon in some regard. Um, generally, the purpose of doing a blend is you're doing it for a balance. Uh, you're doing it so you can say, hey, I want to take the spice from this mm-hmm. region. I want to take the fruit notes from this region. I want to take the, 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 the punch from this, this region um, to kind of create a, a cohesive product. And, and blends are also about repeatability. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you're not using a single product, you have the ability to create the same product in 2012 as you do in 2014. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, blends have their purpose. Um, generally, I mean, you will see single origin espresso at high-end coffee shops, um, but espresso is generally a blend um, because you're you're looking uh, for it to hit certain mm-hmm. notes. Uh, if you pull a shot of you know a lightly roasted Kenyan on espresso, it's probably just going to be way too acidic. It's not going to be enjoyable for 95% of mm-hmm. people. Um, so, so blends are going to be uh, common in some regard for balance, but they don't highlight uh, the unique thing that's taking place on uh, the, the random uh, region of Ethiopia that uh, the sun dried crazy. Well, let me, let me give you another, let me give you another it. example. Uh, I'd like to hear your opinion on. So I was at one of the better uh, whiskey bars uh, in Los Angeles. It's called the daily pint. They have the broadest selection of scotch I've ever seen. They have a wall of scotch. It's incredible. You should come to Scotland. Yeah, I'm sure it's much <laughs> better there, but um, just hundreds and hundreds of different things going on there. And uh, I was talking to my friend who was treating me to a few, um, a few glasses of, of really, you know, really uh, enjoyable whiskey uh, okay. yeah, that I was not paying for. So it was nice. There you go. And um, we were talking and kind of got in this conversation and, 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 um, and I, I, we were talking about all the different places, you know, the regions and the different years and everything. And I think it came up in this conversation, probably another conversation with you or someone else where um, someone had been into scotch for a very long time. Someone had been into whiskey for a very long time uh, said, said to this person, um, oh, are you still in your single, are you still in your single malt phase? Like it's like you go from blended to single malt and then you go back to blended because you, there's something, you know, it's almost like, there's almost like this, uh, this blend beyond the single kind of a way of doing things that it seems like in some Mm. of these finer things, um, because it makes so much sense to me now that I've had Bordeaux blends, you know, that, that kind of transcend what a single origin, um, can do in terms of, yeah. of grapes and wine and stuff like that. So I would think that there would be a possibility in these other areas of the finer things for there to be a, bl- you know, basic blend for the, for the reasons that people usually do blends. And then you get to these single origin things. And then there's like another blend kind of culture beyond yeah. the single origin culture. Where, where you, where you go beyond, you know, it's greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. The blends are, are for so, very, very calibrated reasons that aren't, don't have to do with yeah. getting out the bad quality, you know, single origin, you know, kind of thing. I think that totally has a place. I think the biggest, um, the biggest problem with that is that, especially in the whiskey world, when you talk about a blended whiskey, uh, you're introducing, uh, you know, uh, what they call neutral grain spirit into the mix. Something that's no longer a, a malt whiskey. Um, so you're saying, hey, we have, this is 60% uh, 
um, you know, scotch, mm-hmm. and then forty percent grain whiskey mm-hmm. and some food coloring. So what you um, what so you would say is for for us to get to the the blend beyond the single, the sort of you know the the second level blend or the third level mm-hmm. blend, it would have to be done even more craftily it would have to be done so specifically and 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 not watered down not for economic purposes it would have to be a real experiment in combining single malts for simply for only the goal of a better of a better product yeah and so i guess one other thing that i'll I'll bring up would be like anytime you're buying a single malt that's not just like a single cask whiskey that is uh, a single malt means it comes from the same distillery. Mm-hmm. So you go out there and you buy your ten-year-old uh, Laphroaig. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's just ten-year-old Laphroaig. That means that the youngest whiskey in that bottle is ten years old. It's still going to be a blend of various mm-hmm, vats mm-hmm. and various various casks. Mm-hmm. So you'll have a ten, a twelve, and a thirteen-year, maybe even sixteen. Mm-hmm. So in that way, it's there. different from coffee. Um, and that, yeah, it is different from coffee because once again. Uh, Manufacturers are after in the whiskey world, they're after repeatability uh, with a product that takes uh, 10 years to actually get on the shelf and, and ultimately longer. Uh, you want re- repeatability. You want a product that people can say, oh, I've had, had Lafroy tenure in 1998 and I had it in 2008 and it tasted the same. Um, so for that, uh, blends ultimately do exist. Now, you do have what's called blended malts which you say you grab a Lafroy, a Bruachladi, a Beaumore, and you blend them together to make, you know, a blended malt contained uh, from those three Isla malts. Uh, and those, those are good because once again, you're still, all your product is high quality. Mm-hmm. You're not introducing uh, a neutral grain spirit, a corn whiskey mm-hmm. or whatever uh, into that. Um, not to say corn whiskey is bad, of bourbon, um, but in the, the Scotch world, um, it's, it's a different sphere. It would be so like eating a hamburger that's that's made only of different kinds of awesome steak. You know, not introducing yeah. any of the lower grade stuff into it. It's all exactly. grass fed. They have a bit of ribeye, yeah, a little fillet, uh, a bit of fillet, yeah. yeah, a bit of Kobe. Mm-hmm. Just like all kind of, and you're like, whoa, there's like a like a crazy thing going on here. And it's not because yeah, someone it's not was it's shock. not because someone was cutting corners actually. It's because someone actually went the opposite direction and said, hey. Let's sacrifice the appearance of these things as like, oh, look mm. at this fillet. It, you know, it is so neat and nice on your plate. It's like yeah. we're going to just like try some things and see what happens. I just kind of like that idea. No, I think that's a good point. Um, but once again, what it comes down to is that each part is a quality part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you're, not, you're not introducing a product uh, that corners are cut on um, that – can double your volume by only 10% of your cost. Um, so I think that's, that's one of the, the, the big issues uh, in the craft world. Um, it's making sure that every, there, there are no corners cut on every step of the process. Hmm. So in your sort of journey through the finer things, have you learned anything from your consumption of these things, from your research that, you know, has affected the way that you do other parts of your life or the way that you see life in general? Is there any sort of deeper takeaway that you've gotten from your enjoyment of these things? I think the the biggest part of that would be the people that, that, that create the products, um, I think is always the thing I come back to is the passion that people have that create these products, but also the way that these products um, bring people together in community from all walks of life. Um, and and you might not have anything, you might have nothing in common with somebody, mm-hmm. uh, but you run into them at a bar uh, and they order a, re- a nice beer that you like that maybe not a lot of people have heard of mm-hmm. and instantly you have a connection. Mm-hmm. That's like the um, fandom, the fandom so episode we talked about. You know, where you you meet someone, totally. you go, "Oh, you too!" Like, like these these are things that can really bring people together and kind of break down walls mm-hmm. and give you almost like an instant relational credibility with others. Yeah, I think it's totally. It's it's literally. It's just. It's the fandom of things you put in your body <laughs> or the things you put in your brain. You know, a lot of different directions. Uh, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. <laughs> yeah, really, um, there's a lot of fandoms uh, like that. 
some weird My Little Pony stuff has been yeah. happening, but whatever. Yeah. Um, no, but I mean, I was at, uh, I was at, there's a, in Scotland, you can't smoke indoors anywhere, which sucks. So there's no cigar lounges or anything like that. But there is a cigar boffy, which means a cigar hut at this hotel in town. Uh, and I hang out there often. Uh, and so I went there one day and there was like some 40 year old businessman in a suit, real uppity guy from London. Um, but I lit up a cigar and we started talking and we talked for two hours about cigars and life mm. just because we had that one connection, but literally no other connections anywhere else in our life. Mm. Um, so I really think it, it opens up pathways to create community where community might not exist. That's great. Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's something, you know, communal um, about the enjoyment of these things. Naturally, you want to enjoy it with other people um, most of the mm-hmm. time and you want to, you know, come together, talk about it and compare notes and agree and disagree. And it can kind of, it can kind of relativize the differences between groups of people. And when I say the word communal, I also kind of think of communion, which is this traditional thing that Christians do, or they eat some bread and they drink some wine or grape juice or whatever it is that they use. And it's, it's almost like this kind of like, we all do this, no matter what our politics are, no matter what our views are, no matter who we, what we look like, like this is sort of, it's not just a leveling thing, but it's like a connectivity thing of like, we're doing this thing. Mm-hmm. And I think there's this communion communal aspect to some of these finer things. Yeah, no, totally. Um, I think having a shared experience uh, over the finer things is huge because I could, you know, sit by myself and smoke a cigar and I'll probably enjoy it. Um, but nine times out of 10, if I'm smoking a cigar with someone else, um, I'm going to enjoy that experience much more. Mm-hmm. Same thing is if I'm, if I'm drinking a good beer, I want to share it with the people around mm-hmm. me. I want to invite people over, get another six pack and share mm-hmm. it with them. Um, because it's not just about my experience. It's about having that experience with others, the mutual shared mm-hmm. um, experience. Yeah, and I think there's also this there's also this um in the shared experience universe, there is this kind of a subjectivity thing. I remember reading an article where this this I think it was a woman was writing about wine and about how you know, we have all these ways of rating wine and we all these magazines and all these systems and stuff, but mm-hmm. actually the enjoyment of things like wine and therefore whiskey and tobacco and beer and coffee and other things ought to be at least to some degree a subjective experience. In other words, one of the things that makes a great wine a great wine, like I just, we got a gift card to wine.com and I, I got a few bottles. The bottles that I got were all from all from places we have been together that Jessica and I have gone to together because we have memories attached to to those places and we have subjective experiences. And so, you know, by our very nature, we're not object robots. We're subject, we're subjects, we're people. And so one of the things that we can't discount in the enjoyment of the finer things is that we have very human personal memories, feelings, attachment to things. And that's good. Then that's, it's great. And we shouldn't avoid that in the name of like, well, objectively, this is the best single ball. Yeah, no, I think that's another good point, too, because the craft community can devolve into a circle jerk of douchebaggery really quickly um, because you say, okay, well, I really like, um, you know, this cigar. One's like, well, that's not really a good Mm -hmm. cigar. That's just a whatever. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, the reason why we're partaking in these experiences is because they bring us enjoyment and pleasure. Um, in addition to, you know, the community, mm-hmm. the potential physical, mm-hmm. like I might like a cigar because you and I smoked it together. Like that's part of it. Exactly. You know, if they're really crappy cigars. Yeah. Maybe I won't, but if it's like a pretty good cigar, but then I smoke it with a friend of mine, I might actually have all these great memories, you know, like our brains are, you know, subject to these kinds of things. Like our brains will. Yeah. No, the, any kind of sensory experience, um, ha- has always different, uh, emotions, and things tied to it that, that impact it. Um, so, yeah, I think we all need to recognize that the things we enjoy are highly subjective. Um, you know, there is no, you know, there is no ultimate truth with these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a personal experience. Uh, it can be a shared experience, but ultimately my taste buds, my, my nose, 
um, my eyes, they're all going to experience something from my perspective. Mm -hmm. And you have to recognize that. So you can't put one thing over the other subjectively because it is about what you enjoy and what I enjoy. Cool. Well, that's going to be our takeaway for today. Uh, next week, we Nick will be back and we'll be bringing you a new episode. Uh, we are going to make a choice about that episode. Um, we're not sure exactly what it is, but the death of Anton- Antonin Scalia, Supreme Court Justice, makes us mm. maybe want to do a, a Supreme Court episode for episode 19 next week. But until that time, when Nicholas returns, uh, this has been Ryan... Uh, and that's two Ryans and uh, you'll hear from at least one of us next week so bye bye